at Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together through our message series, Soul Food, when a meal with Jesus was more than food. We'll unpack what Jesus has to teach us from the time He spent around the table. Here, in the ordinary everyday sharing of a meal, we'll discover who Jesus came for, what it takes to be with Him, and how you and I can be changed by His greatness and grace. Again, I'm so glad that you're here with us to worship today. I wonder if you could have one meal with anybody in history, who would it be? Why? I heard it. I heard somebody say it. Don't feel bad. That's the Sunday school answer. And I know that uh, you may be thinking, okay, I'm at church this morning. I've got, like, he asked, who would I have a meal with? So I would say Jesus. That, and that's okay. That's good. That's right. I'll come back to him in just a minute. But I, I've got a list of people that I would want to sit down with and I would want to have a meal with, mainly because history is so fascinating to me. My list would vary, but there's one person recently that I learned about that I have some questions for. I'm perplexed by something he made, and something he did. Uh, that person is the Italian painter Caravaggio. Recently, I was reading a book about faith and art, and the writer of that book, Russ Ramsey, the book is called Rembrandt is in the Wind, he introduced me to Caravaggio. I didn't know anything about him, and, and one of his paintings in particular, it's the painting called The Calling of St. Matthew. It's a masterpiece of a painting, and a few weeks ago while I was in Rome with our short-term mission team, I got a chance to go to the cathedral where this painting is housed and to see it with my own eyes. You see it there. It is stunning, at least, at least to me. But there's a question that this painting begs that I, uh, I have a, a speculative idea on. I have, a, I have a, actually a conviction. I'll put it that way. But I still would want to have a conversation. I'd want to have a meal with Caravaggio to, to figure it out. The question is this. Who in this painting is St. Matthew? If the painting is called The Calling of St. Matthew. Then who, who up here is, is St. Matthew? Now, we, we know who some of these people are in the painting just by the way the painters kind of uh, set them up and, and illustrate them to tell us this is who they are. Paintings are telling stories. And so we know who Jesus is in the painting. He's the, he's the one with the halo uh, on the uh, far, um, as you're looking at it, right side uh, there pointing. He's got his arm outstretched, and he's pointing into this room of tax collectors identifying Matthew and saying, him, follow me. That's who I want. But we've got these other guys, and, and all at the table, who, who is, who's Matthew? Who is Jesus pointing to? Uh, most probably have, have narrowed it down to two. I think there's two good answers that could be up there. One of them is the bearded man. Maybe that's St. Matthew. He's the guy in the middle, the center of the, uh, of the painting at the table there, and he's got his hand, and he's kind of pointing it back to him himself and saying, me? Like there's a surprised look even on his face, like, Jesus, he's calling me to come and follow him? Like, really? Like, I, I don't know. That's, that's pretty surprising. That's pretty amazing. But I also wonder, is his hand pointing at himself, or is he pointing at the younger man all the way to the left at the table there, the far right, or the far left character who has his head down? He's got his hands on the coin. He doesn't even see Jesus coming in the door. Is, is that bearded man pointing at that younger man, saying, that guy? Him? You're calling him? As if the surprise is like, whoa, that dude's bad. Who is St. Matthew in that painting? And so that's why I'd want to have a meal with Caravaggio, because I would finally be able to get down to the nitty-gritty with him and say, okay, you've got this great painting. I don't know for certain who Matthew is. Can you tell me? And unless 
Caravaggio was going to be cagey and kind of a, a weirdo uh, in some way, I'm pretty sure he would say, oh, Matthew was this guy in the painting. I'll tell you later who I think it is. But when I would sit down with him, I would know and I would have certainty. So let me ask you, let's go back to the Sunday school answer this morning that I asked. If you'd have one meal in history with anybody, who would it be? You're all supposed to say Jesus now. Um, if we were to have a meal with Jesus, what would we discover? What would we find out? M many of us have questions. We, we struggle with certain things about our faith. We don't have certainty all the time. And wouldn't it be nice to be able to sit down with Jesus and have a meal with him and say, okay, here's my questions. Here's the things I'm trying to figure out. I don't understand this or that. You can explain it to me. If we could have a meal with Jesus, what do you think you would discover? On Sunday mornings over the last few weeks, we've been uh, reading and studying in Luke's gospel, the account that Luke wrote regarding Jesus. And Luke was writing this to his friend Theophilus. And Luke tells Theophilus at the very beginning, Theophilus, I'm writing this to you. I've, I've undertaken to write a very orderly account of these things. And I'm writing them to you so that you may have certainty. So that you may have certainty about the things you have been taught. Luke's goal is that Theophilus and you and me today, I believe, would have clarity. We would have certainty. And in Luke's gospel, Jesus is at a lot of meals. I love this about Jesus. He eats with everybody. And we've been studying those passages, and we've been seeing what Jesus' actions and his teaching reveal about himself. Luke writes these things so that we would have certainty, and that's the very thing I want you to have this morning. I want you to have certainty that Jesus, who is fully God, became fully human, and lived perfectly and purely to fulfill the law of God for you in every way. And I want you to have certainty this morning that Jesus came and died in your place as a pure and holy sacrifice to make atonement for your sins and to grant you forgiveness, to gift to you forgiveness and his grace. And I want you to have certainty to know with all of your life that Jesus was raised again from the dead on the third day and that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And just as the scripture says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is the Lord to the glory of the Father, so my prayer is today that all of us would have that certainty to bow now and to confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord so that at that last day when he returns, we won't be found wanting, but we'll be able to rejoice with him in the eternal banquet that he offers to all who follow him. If you have certainty about these realities today and you bank your life on them, I believe it will change your life forever. And so I want you to have that certainty. So let's do this. Let's imagine for just a bit this morning that we're one of Jesus' disciples. You pick the one that you want to be. Don't pick Jesus, Judas. <laughs> but, but, but let's imagine you're one of Jesus' disciples and that you would have that opportunity to have a meal with Jesus after his crucifixion. And let's enter into the story that Lee just read for us, the story here in Luke 24, as if we were there. And let's see what we would discover about Jesus and what he has done. I think that if we were one of Jesus' disciples having that meal with him at his after his crucifixion, on the day of his resurrection, if we could have that meal with Jesus, I think we would discover three things. First of all, we would discover that Jesus' resurrection is true. That Jesus' resurrection is actually true. Now, I know it's one thing to say a resurrection is true, but how can we be sure? 
Uh, some of the major critiques against Christianity and some of the, the major criticisms against Christianity all come and attack this teaching, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And, and, and they have to deal with the problem here. And I, and I think it's, it's somewhat understandable to deal with this because resurrection just doesn't happen. I mean, it's not even a rare thing in humanity to see resurrection right now. People don't die and then come back to life again with full bodily strength, vigor, life, even more so than before. It's a difficult premise to believe, and I'll grant you that. So don't feel bad or ashamed. If you hear the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you hear us proclaim that it is true, and you go, ah, I wonder, I have some questions. Be, be encouraged. Even Jesus' disciples, his closest friends, they struggled with it as well. Now, let me just set the stage of the story here for us. At the beginning of Luke 24, which is the story of Jesus' resurrection, after he had been crucified, on the third day, Luke tells us that a group of women went down to the tomb to anoint Jesus' dead body. They had been prohibited from anointing his body because of their worship practices the day after he was crucified on that Sabbath Saturday. And so now having the first opportunity that they can on that Sunday, they go down to the tomb expecting to have to roll back a stone to go in and to anoint the mutilated body of the man that they worship. And these women go down and Luke tells us that they get down to the tomb and they find the stone rolled away. And, and they are stunned by it, and they go in to find the body of Jesus. But when they go in there, they're perplexed because his body is not there. Instead, they see two angelic beings who told them that Jesus was alive and that he was no longer in the tomb, that he had risen. And they remembered. At that moment, they remembered this is exactly what Jesus had said he would do. He had told them plainly that he would be betrayed, he would suffer, he would die. And that on the third day, he would rise again. And these women remembered that, and they believed him. So what did they do? They go back to the 11 disciples, and they told them, hey, guess what? Jesus is alive. He's no longer in the tomb. He is risen. But the disciples just couldn't quite believe it. They, they couldn't quite fathom it. In fact, the scripture says in Luke 24, 11, these words, what the women proclaimed to them, seemed to be an idle tale. And they did not believe them. Did, that didn't stop them, however, from investigating. You see, it's one thing to just sit in your unbelief. It's another thing to go, you know what, I need to check this out. I need to examine. Could this be true? Is it true? And that's exactly what the disciples did. So they sought to discover the truth of what was going on. Peter, he ran to the tomb as fast as he could. He blitzed his way there. And when he got to it, guess what he found it to be? Empty. The tomb was empty. Two other disciples, they decided to leave the city of Jerusalem and go down to another village called Emmaus, about seven miles down the road, and they left. As they were journeying down to Emmaus, Luke tells us that the raised, resurrected Jesus appeared to them. He showed up and he began walking along with them down that road seven miles. And he began to converse with them and ask them, why are you leaving? And what happened in Jerusalem? And what's going on? And these guys are going, where have you been this last week? The whole city knows what's going on. And Jesus began to discuss and share with them. When they got to the community of Emmaus, they, they invited Jesus in to stop and to stay with them. And so Jesus went in, and they began to have a meal together. They broke bread, and it's then. Their eyes were opened, and they realized, this is Jesus. He's alive. What did they do? 
Well, they didn't stick around. They hoofed it seven miles back up the road to Jerusalem to be with the other disciples and tell them, we've seen Jesus. We've been in his presence. He is actually alive. And now we're here at the point where our story picks up. And yet the question is still there. Not all the disciples believe yet. Not all the disciples have had their questions answered. So Jesus shows up. He shows up and he appears. Verse 36 says that as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And he said, peace to them. But they were startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? Jesus shows up right before them, presents himself to them, and he answers the very issue that's at hand, their anxieties and their doubts and their questions. Guys, why are you troubled? Peace be with you. Why are you anxious? Why do these doubts arise in your hearts? Jesus doesn't shame them. He doesn't speak down to them about it. He says, hey, Hey, I see these doubts. I see these anxieties. I'm here to answer them. So he intangibly, physically invites them to experience his physicality. He says to them, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He never mocks them or shames them for their doubts and confusion, They want to believe this is true, so Jesus says, touch me. See, put your hand in my side. There it is. You see the scars. You see the wounds. But more than that, Jesus gives them, I think, the proof that is most convincing for them in that moment. I love how Luke describes it. He says in verse 40, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, or another translation says, why they were still amazed and in disbelief because of joy. They, their minds were breaking into the fact that maybe this is true. They were beginning to become excited and happy. Like, I'm not sure I can believe this, but, but maybe, possibly, could it be? Absolutely. And so as, as they said that, Jesus said, hey guys, do you have anything to eat? Now, now, Jesus is not asking for food because he is diminished, because he is, he is weary, because he lacks any power or strength of his own. Jesus just wants to have a sandwich to show them something. He wants to show them who he is. He wants to give a proof of the reality that he is physically alive. Remember their doubt and their question like, ooh, is this guy a ghost? Are we hallucinating? Is this a, is this a phantom in our midst? Jesus says, let me show you that's, that's not the case at all. So he says, do you have anything to eat? And sure enough, they've got broiled fish there. They gave him a piece, and he took it and ate it before them. Now, here's why this is included in Luke's narrative. Because ghosts don't eat. They can't eat. Phantoms don't need food. But a physical, living, breathing, digesting human being eats food. Jesus has a fish sandwich to prove he has truly risen from the dead. By the way, Chick-fil-A is missing a huge opportunity right here, I think. Think about the kind of power that that meal had for them. Imagine, just let's again imagine we're there. We're in that upper room. Put yourself in their shoes and think about what you saw and ask yourself the question, would you be convinced? Maybe rewind the tape just a, a few steps. Go back just a few days to Friday. You had eaten the last supper with Jesus. You had been at that Passover meal with him. He had distributed bread in the cup. 
And you had shared in that meal with him. And then you watched and you went with him into the garden where he was betrayed and handed over. You, you, you saw him through the trials where false testimony was given against him, where Pilate washed his hands of Jesus, where everyone shouted, crucify. And, and you saw him beaten and wounded and mocked. You saw the crown of thorns thrust on his head. You saw him carry that weighty cross miles down the road, barely able to under his own power. In fact, he couldn't. Another man had to carry it for him. You saw the blood dripping from his body, and you saw the horrific and violent Roman oppressors nailing his hands and his feet to that cross. You saw him cry out in anguish and thirst upon the cross as he hung there. You heard the mockery of the crowd saying, come down, and him saying, Father, forgive them. You saw a Roman centurion who is an expert in execution. He kills and he gets his kill. You saw him thrust a spear into his side. Would you have any doubt that Jesus was dead when he was laid in the tomb? Not at all. Not one ounce of doubt that he is dead would be in your mind. But now, here you are on the third day, and you're in an upper room, and there he is. And there he is. He's alive. He's in front of you. And you think, maybe it's just my, maybe it's just my mind. Maybe I'm losing him. Maybe he's a ghost. And he says, touch me. And, and, and you see the, the fingerprint. You, you feel the physicality of that. And then he picks up food and he eats it. Would you be anything other than totally convinced that he was alive? Would there be any room for doubt anymore? Any skepticism? It would be wiped off the map of your mind. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. This guy defeated, let me be clear here, not avoided, defeated death. And he showed up to answer their anxieties and their fears, to comfort them with his presence, to eat a meal with them as their friend. Now, if you were in that room, wouldn't you want to follow him with the rest of your life and everything? That's what Jesus is doing with us here. That's why this is in the scriptures. He's inviting you and me to say, I, I don't know. I've got questions. He says, come to my meal. See, see my hands. Listen to my word. See, I ate a meal. If we could have this meal with Jesus, we would discover his resurrection is true. Do you believe this? Do you believe him? Not only would we discover his resurrection is true, we would also find that his resurrection is something that's taught. Not only did Jesus eat with them and let them physically touch him, Jesus does what Jesus does best. He teaches them. If we were there, if we were in that room having that meal with Jesus... We all got fish sandwiches too. We would start hearing Jesus begin teaching the Bible, teaching about his resurrection. You see, Luke is very careful to tell us that Jesus told his disciples over and over and over again this would happen. In fact, three times in Luke 9 and 10, Jesus plainly tells his disciples. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't put it in a parable. He says, guys, this is what will happen. I will be betrayed. I will be killed. I will rise again on the third day. He said it to them plainly. But their comprehension was limited and slow and dull. 
I, I, I envision it this way. Think of, you know, Jesus is telling them, I will rise from the dead. You're like, rise from the dead? What does that mean? I don't know. Maybe it's metaphorical. Who knows? It would be like, I think, going back in time, let's say go back to the ancient Roman Empire and explaining a dishwasher to a Roman centurion. They'd just look at you with confusion on their face. You're like, no, 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 no. You don't have to clean the dishes anymore. Like, what? Yeah, yeah, no, you don't have to. All you have to do is, is find the box that's under a countertop where you put your dishes and put the dishes in a tray un, in the box and then press some buttons and blades will swirl around, throwing water and soap everywhere and it'll clean the grease and the grime off those dishes of yours. And then magically, it seems it happened, but it's really science and engineering, Hot steam will start moving through that box and start uh, drying out and rinsing out the dishes, and then it'll, it'll just all evaporate away, and then a little musical chime will happen, and you'll know my dishes are clean, and you can open up and take them out. And that Roman centurion would look at you and be like, you're nuts. What is that? They couldn't fathom the resurrection before the cross, but now that they see and are with Jesus, the dots begin to connect in their mind, and Jesus makes it very clear. He draws the straight lines for them. He said to them, verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now Jesus, when he says the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he's speaking about the threefold division of the Hebrew Bible, what we today refer to as the Old Testament. Jesus says the Old Testament, these 39 books that we have, that Jesus had and were his Bible as well, he sits down with them, has a fish sandwich in hand, and does a Bible study showing them the totality of the scripture pointing to and revealing him. Like That would be just one of the most incredible Bible studies of all time. Jesus says, all scripture points to me. But they needed more than just information. They needed spiritual illumination as well. And Jesus gives that too. As he's teaching them, Verse 45 says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. We need the spirit of God to open our minds so that we understand his word. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Jesus has a light of the Holy Spirit dawn upon them to see that what the Bible says is true and that he alone is the hero, the center, the storyline, the protagonist, the beginning, the culmination and the conclusion of all things. Just as it is in all things, it is true in Scripture, for from Christ and through Christ and to Christ are all things. Jesus in his person and work as the eternal God and the only begotten Son are not just a footnote or a mere example in a book about how to be a good and moral person. All Scripture points to him and is about him. Now here's why this is important for you and me to have certainty today. If you were having this meal with Jesus and he taught you the Bible and opened your mind to the scripture and its truth, your life would be radically changed. And it's true for us. Here again is an invitation for you and for me to ask Jesus to open our minds and our hearts, even today, to the truth of who he is and what he has done communicated in the scriptures. It's, it's an opportunity for us to say, Lord, help us see Jesus just as Jesus informed and illuminated his disciples to the biblical truth of who he is, he will inform and illuminate any person who comes to him seeking understanding and truth. One church father, Anselm, called it faith-seeking understanding. So friends, if you want to know Jesus and understand him and be near to him, he will not turn you away. He will turn no one away who comes to him and says, could I see you? 
I would see Jesus. So are you willing to ask? Are you willing to ask him to show himself to you? Would you confess your doubts? Would you confess maybe your stubbornness? Would you confess even your pride and ask him to give you the Holy Spirit and show you who he is? He will do that for all who come to him and he won't hold back. Search the scriptures. Pray for understanding and illumination. See that these things are true and that they are taught. If we were to have a meal with Jesus, we would see the resurrection is true. We would hear the resurrection has been taught from the word of God. Finally, we would be so changed, we would be so transformed that we would discover Jesus' resurrection is to be told. Jesus opened their mind to understand the scriptures, and he tells them the Bible says, the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And the question is, well, who is the Christ? And Jesus says, do you see it? Here's the dots. Let me connect for you. I died, and on the third day I rose again. And the Bible says the Christ will die, and on the third day rise again. It's talking about me, guys. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And because of that truth, because of that reality, something is to be proclaimed. Verse 47, Jesus says the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus doesn't leave responding him just to the realm of the intellect or the mind. When you discover who Christ is, when you see Jesus and you see that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah sent from God to save his people from their sins, then you have to do something with that truth. People say, well, there's all kinds of ways I can respond to Jesus. I think there's two. There's two. When you see that Jesus is the Christ, you have to share it. You have to proclaim it. But, but many people say, well, maybe there's something else I can do. Sure, you can oppose him. Those are the options that Jesus leaves for us. When we see that he is the Christ, you can oppose him, perhaps seek to silence him, to destroy him. But let me tell you, your record isn't going to go well there. Even death tried to defeat Jesus, and death lost. You can't silence him. Some will say, well, I can just, I can ignore him. You can't ignore the resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords. In fact, Jesus won't tolerate anyone to ignore him because the day is coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess he is the Lord to the glory of the Father. So you can oppose him. You can't, you can't ignore him, which means you should obey him. Humbly repent of your sins and come to him for the life and the grace and the love that is never ending and that only he supplies. Jesus says that's what's to be proclaimed or told to all the nations. He is the Christ. And because he is the Christ, repentance for the forgiveness of sins is to be called for. That's the way we respond to the news that Jesus is alive, that he is the Messiah, the Christ who has come for us. And so now let me stand here again and proclaim in the name of Jesus to everyone who hears my voice in this room, everyone who will hear my voice on a recording or on a live stream anywhere, let me proclaim to you Jesus is the Christ. He is the only Son of God who came to save us from our sin and rebellion and the coming wrath of God. Jesus did this by living the perfect sinless life we have not lived and are not able to live. Jesus saves us from our sins by taking the penalty of our sin, which is death, and the curse of God's wrath upon himself on the cross for us. Jesus became our substitute, our mediator, and he made atonement for our sins by removing our sin from us in his death on the cross. 
He bore the wrath of God in his death on our behalf. And then on the third day, Jesus was raised to life again by the power of the Father, demonstrating his victory over Satan, sin, and death, demonstrating that he alone is the only Savior and Lord. Jesus calls, because he is the Christ, everyone to humble yourself, to repent of your sin and rebellion. He calls everyone, because he is the Christ, to come to him. Every one of you who is weary and heavy burdened. And he says, I will give you rest. Jesus, because he is the Christ, calls all of us to believe him and to entrust our lives to him fully and completely and exclusively. For he says, everyone who trusts in me will never be put to shame. So friends, I proclaim Jesus is the Christ to you today. He has died for you. He has been raised to life for you again. Repent and believe his good news. Here's the takeaway for you this morning. The living Jesus, because he is the Christ, calls you to repent and believe and to live for him. Jesus is alone. Jesus alone is the one who forgives sins. So come and trust him. The scripture says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved because it's with the mouth that one or it's with the heart that one believes and is justified, and it's with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So again, because Jesus is the Christ and he is alive, repent and believe the good news and live for him. If you were having a meal with Jesus and you saw the truth and you were taught that Jesus was the Christ, your life would be so transformed you'd want to tell the world what you'd found. You'd want to tell them about the one who loves you and has rescued you from the pit of hell by coming down to your hell himself and liberating you by his death and resurrection. What you'd become is a witness. And so Jesus identifies his disciples this way in verse 48. He says, you are witnesses of these things. The implication is go and proclaim them to all the nations. Start here in Jerusalem. Jesus, in fact, commissioned his first disciples to go in the power of the Holy Spirit, whom he supplied. And we have the gospel word today because they were completely changed at this meal with Jesus. So what about you? The question the Caravaggio painting asks is, who are you? I'll tell you who I think Matthew is in this. Are you the one who has your head down? You you don't see Jesus. You're too focused on the money, the things of this world, the stuff of this life, that you miss that Jesus is standing there calling you, saying, come and follow me? Or are you the one who has the light of the word of God, the light of the cross shining upon you? And maybe that is your response. Matthew's the bearded guy. He's got the finger pointing at himself saying, me? Really? Maybe that's how you feel this morning. You've heard Jesus is the Christ, and he is calling to you to come and follow him. And maybe perhaps you're like, me? Really? I'd say yes. Jesus is standing in our lives today through his word right now, calling us all to trust and believe and to follow him. Jesus wants you and me to enjoy the eternal banquet and feast with him forever in his kingdom where there will be no more death, there will be no more sadness, there will be no more tears. 
only his great celebration. If you were to have a meal with Jesus, you would find that the living Jesus calls you to repent and believe and to live for him. Friends, I invite you today to follow Jesus, to trust him, to be bold in sharing him. If you've heard these things this morning and you say, yeah, I, I, I want to believe, I, I, I want to come to Jesus, I want to talk with you. Even after the service this morning or while we're singing, uh, if you want to respond, I would love to share with you about how you can respond to Jesus in faith even more, to pray with you and to help you take those next steps. He's alive. He wants fellowship with you. He calls you because he is the Christ to repent and believe and live for him. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.